You're listening to the Annuity Agents Podcast with Bill Broach and Anthony Owen, co-founders of Safe Money Radio Marketing and regular contributors to ThinkAdvisor and other industry publications. Bill is a 100 plus million dollar annuity producer, co-founder of annuity.com and an internet branding and reputation expert. Anthony has helped agents and advisors across the country achieve annuity production premiums in excess of $20 million per year and is president of Annuity Agents Alliance and Annuity Innovation Systems. Each week, Bill and Anthony update you on the annuity business with marketing, sales process, and case design strategies based on actual practice, not theory. Notes for this week's podcast can be found at annuityagentsalliance.com. This podcast is for licensed financial professional use only. With that, greetings. This is David Townsend, and welcome to Annuity Agents Podcast, which is co-host Bill Broach and Anthony Owen. Bill, uh, go ahead and get us started. Hey, thanks, David. Uh, welcome, everybody, and hope everybody is healthy and warm and uh, uh, everything's well at where part of the country you're in. Uh, I don't, I want, there's a, uh, if you're on, happen to have the notes, there's a, a, it's a, a little warning I didn't get on there that came across last night and it's from the, IR, uh, the IRS having to do with the COVID-19 and this government check fraud. And apparently it's quite, uh, it's, it's kind of expanded and it's everywhere now. And so, uh, you know, you might might have a look at all that, and if you're dealing with your prospects and clients, it might be a good warning to just remind them to be careful of this thing. Uh, the IRS never reaches out by uh, yeah, the social, any social media, any texts and emails. They reach out via the U.S. mail, so <clears throat> there's a lot of that going on. You know, one of my dad's favorite lines was, uh, cheaters never win and winners never cheat, and there's a lot of truth in that. And when you look at what's happening uh, a way of fraud across the country is just pretty flabbergasting. The SEC estimated that there's about 800 Ponzi uh, schemes broken up annually uh, where people are using other people's money to pay dividends, etc. And it's just out and out fraud. There's a very big one that just got announced this last uh, week from uh, GPB Capital based in New York, which is a private placement firm. By the way, a private placement firm is the go between between an idea and a concept to where it's sold to uh, longer term investors. And this was one point eight billion. So imagine skimming one point eight billion off of the uh, client's assets. I mean that takes a that takes a, a lot of gall to, to do that. And uh, so if they can get away with that bigger stuff you can bet there's lots of others. And uh, Wall Street seems to be uh attracting more and more of these uh, this type of things. And it has to do with what what would you guess the yield? The yield on Banks, uh, bank interest rates and U.S. Treasuries are so low that people are taking a chance. And so this uh, involved about 2,000 people that did this. And, uh, it's just uh, shameful, uh, shameful that it was done. Uh, speaking about Wall Street and all that, maybe some of you know the name Charles Hugh Smith. He's a, an economist and a, and, and a best-selling author, written a number of books. And uh, he says, you know, one of his quotes, which I thought was the best, is the stock market is definitely one giant fraud. And when you look at the uh, – I'm going to talk about short selling a little bit later in, in uh, on the podcast. But when you talk about uh, manipulating of the market, they certainly are in a p- position to take advantage strictly because of access to 
more information and so on and so forth. So I'm not picking on all Wall Street. I'm saying there's a lot of fraud going on. So what should you tell your, your prospects and your clients? The very most important thing you can do is when they're looking at somebody or considering an advisor and even yourself, review your Internet credentials. That is absolutely essential. And it doesn't take a, a lot of knowledge to weed out the good credentials from the ones that shouldn't be there. And uh, it's easy to do that. So that's the most important thing. And when you meet with a new prospect or client, say, hey, Google me. Find out who I am. Look at my credentials and so on and so forth. The other thing I thought that's really important is to build a solid core. In other words, you've got your pension, you got Social Security, you got income from annuities, things that have guarantees on it. Uh, things that have a far less risky uh, asset base and so on and so forth. Uh, remember, there's a lot of market scams, and remember that our products are boring. They couldn't be more boring, but they're guaranteed, and no one has to worry about them once once they own them. And would, don't you think those guys at GPB wish they were selling our products now, not facing 40 years in prison for fraud? And just think about the lives They've interrupted those 2,000 people. It's it's really a sad deal. So be uh, be diligent and make sure you, your prospects and your clients know all about the scams and the fraud out there and be a conduit of good information to them. Uh, Anthony, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. It's cold <laughs> here too. <laughs> cold everywhere it seems. But uh, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna warm you guys up a little bit with uh, <laughs> a hot topic. <laughs> so yeah, I've been asked this question so many times over the years, and uh, it's come up as a question. It's also come up during case design and sales support, and uh, sometimes the agent doesn't even bring it up, but I can just tell that it's their process, and so I bring it up for them. But the question came to us this week in a nutshell, um, how do I avoid giving prospects information and then having them take it to a competitor and have that competitor use that information? And I get the question. Nobody likes giving and not getting in return, right? I mean, you paid for the lead. You spent the time. And then to have a client take that information and devalue your value-added proposition by uh, having one of your competitors take advantage of that uh, just seems like cheating, and it's not fair. So is life, right? The question is, you know, when I look at this, I see someone that has a tendency to play defense instead of offense. They're trying to find out a defensive position to protect their efforts and keep someone else from using it. And they should be playing offense. And here's what I mean by that. First of all, from a philosophical view, why does a client even owe us anything? I mean, do they really owe us anything? What do we have? We have some illustrations we've run. We've, at best, we have a full fact finder. We've sold them on a problem. We've sold them on a solution. And they're going to go forward with that solution. So we've taken our time to do that. And then we have the cost of the lead and our gas or whatever that we 
had to endure to get to the point where the client uh, could break that quote-unquote trust and take our information someplace else. What is that compared to what the client has to lose? We're talking about the cost of a lead in our time compared to hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars, uh, that the clients work their entire lives for. And then we're going to take the position that they owe us something because we ran an illustration or did some case design for them and had the cost of a lead. You talk about an inequitable proposition, right? I mean, the client has so much to lose. So when I approach a client, I approach it from the standpoint that I am there to serve and they are there to decide whether they'll allow me to serve them, and they have a right to decide that they don't want to work with me no matter how hard I work for them. And that, I believe, puts me in the right mental space to do what I need to do. And I think that would help everybody if they approach their clients that way. If you don't approach it that way, you start approach it from a position of selfishness. In other words, I'm going to give you something, but then you owe me something for that. As soon as you become selfish in the sale, you start to basically guilt trip your client. And I've even uh, had agents that I've spoken to say that when I meet with a client, I make them agree that they will buy from me if they buy something. I mean, this is like five minutes into the conversation. Um, that's not sales. That's coercion. <laughs> that's manipulation. Uh, and the client has the most to lose, not us. So I don't really feel that that is uh, the best way to approach our clients. I think the best way to approach our clients is from a point of service. No matter how successful you are in this business, every single one of us, you know, the $50 million producer, the 500000 producer. We all make our money by failing most of the time. And the battle for the sale is not uh, through manipulation. It's over information. The agent that gets the client to talk about their information and talk about their problems and agree to problems is the agent that's probably going to win the sale, assuming you come along with a great solution, too. I mean, you have to be likable. You have to be approachable. They have to trust you. You have to get them to talk about their information doing a full fact finder. You have to use the information from that fact finder to get them to agree to a problem that needs to be solved. And then you have to come along with a solution that they like and that they understand and that they can agree to right? But it all starts with the information. And the big mistake is not having all the information, giving an illustration, uh, handing out brochures, and then expecting the client that they owe you something because you sent them an illustration. They don't owe you anything. It's their retirement. It's their money. It's not ours. So we have to win through offense, which means that we provide the most comprehensive solution um, that the client understands that solves a problem based on information that we got the client to share. 
And if you do that, you're still going to fail most of the time, but you're going to win a lot more. And you're going to feel good about what you do. Um, you know, when you play offense instead of defense uh, and you put the responsibility on yourself, not the client, that makes you a better salesperson. You know, if, if, if you fail to close, you it was your fault. And if you approach things that way, that's going to allow you to be better because then you can take responsibility for a failure to compel and make improvements. It's also a better place to be as far as your own mental health. You know, if you're emotionally um, detached from uh, the situation and every client is just a client that you're doing your best for and you know, whether the client's got a million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, you approach every client the same, and you're going to be in a better headspace when a when a deal falls through. Uh, and all that being said, you know there is a limit. You know, if you believe in yourself and you believe in what you're doing, if you if you approach this business from the standpoint that you're changing lives, not just pitching products, uh, then you're going to also value your time. And you're going to realize that you need to be a good steward of that time. And if you have a prospect or client that doesn't respect that, you're not going to move on uh, because of manipulation to another client. You're going to move on because you realize you have something valuable that needs to be shared and you can't have people uh, taking up a bunch of your time and devaluing your service because it takes away from other people. So that's how you kind of decide to move on. It's like I have other people to meet meet with. They need my attention, and this prospect is taking up my time and not valuing it, so therefore I move on, rather than approaching it from an angle of manipulation and and they owe you something. Um, that will just make this business funner, too. You have, uh, trust me, you'll enjoy it more because you won't be stressed out and uh you won't start taking on a negative viewpoint of, of the human race you know, because people don't aren't loyal to you. If you're expecting loyalty where it shouldn't exist, it's just going to lead to a bunch of discontent and negative attitudes in your own business. So that's how I approach that. Um, you know, moving on to uh, Brad Pistol, I think you wanted me to move on to the next one, right, Bill? Um, yeah, that'd be great. It's just a cute idea. Right. Brad Pistol sent us uh, pictures of golf balls last week. He's one of her radio hosts in Springfield, Missouri. And on one side you have Titleist, and on the other side you have Safe Money Radio. And it's just another example of this amazing guy that knows the power of brand building. And it led to a bunch of emails back and forth, including training gophers to take safe money balls out and replace people's golf balls on the <laughs> golf course and all kinds of funny stuff, but <laughs> <laughs> including me creating a meme of a gopher uh, yelling safe buddy radio, which I thought was there you go. <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, it's, it's live your brand. You, you know, nobody's going to stand on the hilltop with a megaphone except for you. You have to promote yourself, the credibility, the branding, uh, Safe Money Radio Marketing is such a great way to do that, uh, but so is Internet Credentials, association with annuity.com, you know, initials and credentials after your name. 
um, you know, published books, you know, uh, we're doing this thing. Bill has been spearheading, uh, getting our agents published in ThinkAdvisor as uh, contributors. All of these things you have to shout about. If you don't shout about them, not in an arrogant or egotistical way, but your clients won't know about this unless you talk about it. So you have to use every single opportunity. And if that means putting Safe Money Radio on your golf balls and uh, handing them out to uh, people at the golf course when you're playing golf or uh, handing them out to your clients and your prospects so that when they go out on the course and play with their friends, uh, their their friends see them playing with a Safe Money Radio golf ball, uh, that's what you do. Live your brand yep. and uh, make sure everybody hears about it. You know, and it's and, uh, another uh, a quick quick note on it. It's another thing that just to illustrate how Brad is so all in on everything. I mean, he markets constantly. And uh, imagine how many clients I'd have if they followed me around the golf course and found all the golf balls I've lost. It would be <laughs> we need to move on. Uh, look, short selling. It's all over the place. GameStop. Everybody knows the story and about uh, how this group of uh, uh, off of Reddit, tried to manipulate the market. In fact, they did. They did move the market. Uh, in the end, low, uh, the Wall Street won uh, because they uh, they could wait them out. There was enough time to wait them out. It's pretty simple. So how how short selling works is a pretty simple deal. You uh, you go to a wirehouse like uh, J P Morgan is an example. Uh, you have to have su- sufficient money to cover the worst case in the, if, if the short sale fails and you owe. So you, you back that up by borrowing stock from the wirehouse. You back that up with, with hard, uh, hard equities. And then if you're a short seller, let's, in my example, I had, uh, I think, uh, yeah, say a stock is worth $9 a share and, uh, then you buy a short on it for $5. In other words, you think the stock's going to go down to $5 when it does. Then you liquidate that. You pay for the your you pay for the cost of the uh, they're called puts and calls. You pay for for the cost of of the short position on it, and you pocket the difference. So you really borrow the stock, and then you keep the difference on it. You return the stock back to the wirehouse, and, and that's it. And that's how it works. It's as simple as that. So when GameStop went through the moon, Wall Street seeing it skyrocket, they naturally moved in behind it with shorts, thinking that the market would go down. And that's why several of them got caught in a short position with the unable. Uh, by the way, the short positions are for a time period. It could be an hour. It could be a day. It could be a month. You pay for that uh, that risk. And then that risk is reinsured by the wirehouse. So it's, uh, there's no loss to them. They're just loaning you the stock. Anyway, so as the uh, as started to climb in these short positions, the time ran out on they had to pay. And there was, uh, I think, $28 billion lost in short positions on GameStop. Those that had longer positions, they didn't take a, a, an hour or a week or maybe out a month or two, came out of it just right because the stock has plunged back down and they are able to make a, make a profit on it. And so that's what it's called. They're called puts and calls. It's a short position or a long position. It's a simple way to explain it. You're betting if you're shorting it, you're betting the stock's going to go down. If you're long, you're betting the stock's going to go up. You don't use any of your own stock; you borrow it all from a wirehouse, and that you secure that with your own assets. So you remember the the movie, the the Big Short. I think it is. You get a chance to watch it. I watched it again the other night. Pretty pretty interested on that. And uh, a lot of this information came from uh, <coughs> our our 
our good agent in Arkansas, Eric Coons, and uh, thanks, Eric, for sending it along, along our way. Uh, I've had I've been telling you I've had accumulation of questions. I've been trying to get through them, and I decided to try and empty out the question uh, pile today. And so these are frequently asked questions regarding the Secure Act. And the first one is, you know, the the do minimum required minimum distributions commence at age 72 or 70 and a half? And so that the answer is it all depends. It depends on when you are 70 and a half, and the cutoff was December 31st of 2019. If you're 70 and a half before that date, then you have to start required minimum distribution. If you're after, turn 70 and a half after December 21st, or 31st of 2019, and you can wait to 72. If you happen to be in a, a planned participant, it depends if the plan has allowed that within their plan. Now, most plans, of course, would modify it to follow these rules. Some smaller plans and smaller companies may not have done it, so that depends. Second question, are there ways to buy life insurance inside an IRA? And the answer is no. I have had this question so many times that you cannot buy life insurance in, a, in an IRA. And so the other question is, is uh, the tail, uh, this actually was a three-part question. Here's just two of them. Uh, why might an IRA owner leave IRA benefits in trust? And it's simple. It's asset protection. So it could be for some against creditors. It could be need for beneficiary of the trust having need money out in the future it could be a, a handicapped child it could be anything same reason you'd put anything in trust and that's creditor protection etc cetera, etc cetera. and what's the earliest you can open an IRA account you can open as soon as you have eligible compensation and so the answer the example I use on this if a, a one-year-old baby doing acting jobs or a, you know a photo job or something they make money they in fact can do it the problem is very, very few custodials will accept uh, IRAs uh, prior to age 15. And so if if you have someone that has a child and they're making money or something, yes, they should explore that. They can still contribute to an IRA and provide they can find a custodial. And the difference between, the last question is the difference between a conduit trust and accumulation trust. So a conduit trust, it just means that when that trust is funded, the funds have to be paid out. A good example of that would be an irrevocable life insurance trust. They're funded at death. The money goes into the trust. There's no reason to keep the money in trust generally. And the reason why you don't, why generally accumulation trusts aren't aren't used, especially unless they're just held to hold hold non-performing assets or assets that don't throw off income, because the tax rate's higher. So an islet trust, which is a conduit trust, means that they would pay this money out to the beneficiaries and in the trust, pure and simple. An accumulation trust would be would have a far higher tax liability. So that would maybe hold, you know, some stocks long term or something that don't have dividends in them, and so you would accumulate it for something like that. So tax liability is the difference on that. Uh, Anthony, products. Yeah, real quick. Sorry, we're going long today, guys, but uh, Prudential. Uh, looking to offload uh, new business for variable news just goes to show these assets are toxic. You know, every time, you know, everything's great, they want to sell them. And then when things go bad, they don't want to sell them. Whereas if you, you know, how many uh, insurance carriers have you heard of getting out of the indexed annuity business? <laughs> you know, just it doesn't happen, but everybody seems to, uh, want to offload the variable annuity business when things don't go their way. And that's, 
you know, has to do, we've talked about this before, Bill talked about it on numerous occasions, uh, you know, who holds the money? Well, on a variable annuity, the insurance carrier doesn't hold the money. It goes on to sub-accounts. They get paid fees based on the amount of account value. When that account value goes down, hence the market risk, their fees go down uh, and don't support the benefits. So uh, I think Prudential is going to be pivoting more towards our side of the business is what we're seeing there. Uh, nothing else too much going on, just the same product changes that we had previous week, so uh, okay. nothing new there. All right. Sorry we're running a little long, but uh, under David's picture, it's a pretty good uh, webinar coming up, attracting clients to referrals. There's a lot of ways to use referrals. We've talked about it endless uh, times on on uh, this call, but uh, you might have a look at it. It's worth it uh, through North American, and there's a company that is highly, highly regarded and highly respected and highly rated. Uh, moving on down underneath uh, Cheryl Moore. Uh, there's a, a pretty good article about the opportunity to cross-selling life insurance and annuities. That's certainly worth worth your time. And I'm going to stop for just a second on this one. Northwestern Mutual. You know, I am a retired Northwestern Mutual agent. I loved Northwestern Mutual. They were the absolute best possible company to buy insurance from. They were a very difficult company to work for because they, uh, they, their, their compensation scale was so thin. But look how this company's evolved. They they had uh, an insured that had four million dollars of life insurance. The guy, whatever the details are, he got involved with drugs, and he's uh, I think forty five years old, and he overdosed on drugs. Well, uh, some one of these policies has been enforced for twenty years. So Northwestern Mutual declines declines the claim because they said it's suicide. And it goes to court, and they won. If you take drugs, you're committing suicide, and they won't pay the claim. And this is a company that has always done everything right, but just think about that, denying claims over something that – who would ever think that, that's, that they would win this based on suicide? So they didn't have to pay the claim. They did refund all the premiums paid. But this, to me, kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with, the, with what Anthony was talking about, prudential. Anything, they're de everybody's de-risking. Everybody's de-risking. And why a company like Northwestern Mutual wouldn't pay a, a death claim on this is, is staggering. And then the one underneath it, get this, Northwestern Mutual is named one of, uh, one of Fortune Magazine's most admired companies. So they've got a great PR department. Uh, long in place uh, after I left and retired, but uh, I just thought it was Anyway, mind-boggling. Looking on down, hey, Jim Grazioli, our uh, wonderful agent in Florida, wrote an article. Uh, I got, I got it, helped him get it into Think Advisor on the platform, and guess what? It got picked up by all the, the national services, and here it is, helping versus selling from our own Jim Grazioli. So congratulations, Jim. That's really a big deal. Uh, also, on a more serious note before we close off here, there's a – talks about COVID-19 nightmare. It's just so – so hideous and so have a look at that article when you get a chance and uh anthony i guess i'm finished yeah i'm finished too <laughs> okay everybody um, david we'll see you guys in uh see you guys in two weeks two weeks you got it thanks everybody and appreciate you being on the podcast and listening to us talk to you soon thanks for listening to the annuity agents podcast with bill broach and anthony owen 
Check back each week for a new episode. For more information on how Annuity Agents Alliance will help you build your annuity business, go to annuityagentsalliance.com or call 888-742-4368. If you like the show, please leave your rating and review on the podcast channel where you found the show. The information and opinions expressed here from third parties or guests are believed to be reliable, but the information cannot be verified or guaranteed by Annuity Agents Alliance. The opinions of guests do not necessarily represent the opinions of Annuity Agents Alliance or its partners. The prior information does not represent tax, legal, or investment advice and is for licensed financial professional use only. 